What's going on, everyone? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and our guest today is Anthony Scaramucci. Anthony is the founder of Skybridge Capital, a global investment firm based in New York City, which also hosts the SALT Conference, one of the largest investment conferences in the world. In 2017, Anthony was appointed White House Communications Director by Donald Trump, a role that lasted only 11 days before he was fired. Since leaving the White House and the world of politics, Anthony has returned to Skybridge and recently launched a $310 million fund to invest in Bitcoin. During our conversation, we talked about everything from Anthony's early days, his career on Wall Street, and how he started Skybridge Capital, the story of how he became White House Communications Director, and the crazy 11 days that ensued, why he's so bullish on Bitcoin, and much, much more. We start off our conversation by learning about Anthony's upbringing and childhood. I grew up in a strict Italian family. My father was a blue-collar guy, never went to college, two years in the Army, Almost got deployed to, uh, you know, the, the Korean War. Uh, the war ended before his deployment. Uh, came to Long Island. He grew up in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. Came to Long Island, met and married my mom, and spent 42 years at a construction site in my hometown. And so Long Island is a glacial deposit. So the Ice Age came, mowed down the Catskills. They were taller than the Himalayas. When the ice receded, it left Long Island, Block Island, the elbow of Cape Cod, in the town that I grew up in, the peninsula of Port Washington, it was probably the largest sand deposit in North America, all granulated granite from the glaciers. And so my pops, uh, that sand mine was open for 95 years. They opened it in 1905. They closed it in 2000. My pops was the crane operator there for 42 years, hourly worker, uh, was in the union. Uh, and 65% of the concrete that made the New York City skyline from 1905 to 2000 came from my hometown. So I got very lucky because if you know where Port Washington is, is on the North Shore of Long Island. It's a relatively rich town, very good school system, very good school budget. And so even though I grew up in a lower, not lower, but I'd say blue collar middle class area of that town, I benefited from a great school system. I ended up getting into Tufts. My father's thought it was spelled T-O-U-G-H-S. He had no fucking clue. I ended up getting into Harvard. My mother thought it was Hartford Law School. That's everything you need to know about my family. Okay? They didn't know about Hartford Law School, Harvard Law School. They didn't know what the hell was going on. All they wanted was their kids to do better than them. They were very hardworking people, uh, honest. My old man is an honest guy. Uh, he was the type of guy that if you got a parking ticket on Main Street, he would walk to the post office and get a mail order and mail the ticket so he wouldn't have to deal with it when he got home. That was my dad. He was like the uh, the bus driver that Robert De Niro played in the Bronx. Scale. It was no funny business. Right. It was very hardcore, uh, but he was also a tough as nails, used to beat the living daylights out of us. So that mm. caused a lot of stress and anxiety in that house. Uh, Anthony, and can, I ask you, can I ask you a quick question about yeah. honesty? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny to me because you describe honesty in a positive light, which it absolutely is. And I feel like these days, and, you know, I don't want to get super philosophical here, but it's almost like we're surprised when we come across honest people, right? Honest, loyal people, because we see so much of the opposite of that in the world, right? Just in our own backyard. Why is it so? I mean, it might be a stupid and obvious question. No, we're, in a, we're in a cynical. We're in a cynical society now. You know, someone fifty years from now, 
that writes about the American zeitgeist circa 2021, so let's say this is a historian writing in 2071, uh, what they'll say is, wow, America got built up after the Second World War predominantly because the entire country was engaged in that unified struggle. And so everybody had some level of military training or they were attached to somebody that was in the military. Just go look at the math demographically. And so the return from that war was met with a lot of rigidity and discipline. So if you look at corporate America, rigidity and discipline, media America, rigidity, objectivity and discipline. And so what happened was, unfortunately, the social contract of that and the civic virtue of that frayed because we had less and less people having a civic purpose in our society. And so no national service, no draft. Even if you're not going to war, what about cleaning up the parks or going into the Peace Corps? None of that. We have a volunteer army. Less than two and a half percent of the people touch that army. Uh, And so we've lost that civic virtue and we've become way more tribal at a time when the media is fragmenting. And so we're now in a get ahead as fast as we can society. And so with that comes a lot of mendacity. There's mendacity in the society that a World War II veteran trained in the army or a U.S. Marine trained at Paris Island would never subject himself or his family to. You know, not to say that they weren't heavy drinkers or they weren't adulterers, all of the flaws of human beings, but there was a civic purpose to the society. And so now you're 80 years out from the war. The war is a distant memory. There's very few living veterans. And we're now in a different, more perverse society. And the, the society has frankly been wrecked by the baby boomers. You know, Donald Trump is a representative of that baby boomer generation, very narcissistic, overpromising, overspending. Uh, the American politicians have overpromised and underdelivered for the American people, uh, and the American people keep voting them in because of the promises, $28 trillion of deficit spending later, and we are a society now of cynics, and we are a society now that's primarily mendacious. Wow. Yeah, that you put it very well. I, I never thought of it that way. But um, so kind of going back, um, you know, you mentioned you go to Harvard Law School. What, did you want to be a lawyer your entire childhood, or did you have other plans at the time? No, you know, I wanted to be, look, guys, I'm older than you guys. I wanted to be an astronaut, right? We were landing people on the moon, okay? So when I was in the second grade, the thing I wanted to be was an astronaut. Um, And then as I got a little older, I said, okay, I want to be a business person. And then when I was 21, I read an article in Time Magazine, true story. Uh, What what, what did the article say? The article said they were paying lawyers $65,000 a year at Carvath, Swain & Moore, which was this WASP law firm that I could have never gotten into if my life depended on it. Um, Isn't it still a WASP law firm? I don't know. It's probably more diverse. <laughs> now. Everything's yeah. That's why you see this apotheosis going on in white America, because everything is getting more diverse. Right. So this is the white lash that's taking place. You know, This is this apotheosis that Trump is uh, lighting Molotov cocktails into. But it's probably more diverse now, but back in 1985, it could have not never gotten in there. But I said, okay, they're paying $65,000 a year. I was 21 at the time. My father was making like $33,000 a year. I said, okay, this is double my pop's salary. Why do I need any more money than that? That's how simplistic, that's how narrow banded my thinking was. That's how immature my decision-making was. And so I applied to seven law schools. I got rejected by Yale, accepted by the six others. I went to Harvard. 
Mm-hmm. But I don't think I think I read you didn't end up practicing, right? You just went straight into no, I went Wall straight Street. to Goldman Sachs because I was more focused on being an entrepreneur and money. And I had written down in one of my law school goals is that the minute I paid my student debt off, I was going to start my own business. So even though my net worth would be a zero, I didn't have any debt. I was going to go start my own business because I. Where does that come from? I'm curious, like, where does that, that inclination that, that or that, comes from, that comes from household anxiety? I think you manifest yourself from age 11 to 18. So if you're Byron Reen and you're orphaned or you're David Rubenstein living in a housing project near Baltimore or you're Anthony Scaramucci growing up anxious because your father got his hours cut back and he's coming into the house, slamming the doors and pushing people around in the house. And you're like, OK, I got to go out and get a paper out because I got to help my parents uh, make ends meet here in the house. And so you're 11, 12 years old, you start a Newsday paper route and you're like, okay, uh, I'm not going to be my dad beholden to a union leader and a boss at his company where his destiny is not controlled by himself. And he's got all this anxiety because he doesn't use his mind for work. He's using his hands. And so I'm going to go get myself educated and then I'm going to go start my own business so I can control my own destiny. So mm-hmm. that, that was in my brain at a very early age. And so I was at Goldman. I never expected to be a partner there. And by the way, I couldn't have been a partner there. I didn't have that skill set. And also you could have, you could have started your own law firm if you decided to go that route and you wanted to run a business in law. But why did you think finance and Goldman Sachs was a better route for you to to be? At that point in my life, there was no subtlety. That was a simplistic fool. Okay. And so what do I mean by that? Uh, the law firms were paying $85,000 a year. Goldman Sachs was paying $110,000 a year. Okay, I'd like to tell you that I was making the decision based on something other than money, but I yep. was not. I had $150,000 of school debt that had to be repaid, mm-hmm. and I was going for the highest paid job that I could find. Now, that's a lesson to people that are listening to your podcast. Don't do that because I went for the job that was the highest paid that I thought was the coolest. I didn't go for the job that was right for me. And so I got fired from that job. I was in that job for 18 months. I'm coming up on the 30th anniversary of my firing. I was fired February 1st. It was a Friday, 1991. Okay. And I was in a tailspin panic that weekend because Goldman fired me. They gave me an $11,000 severance check. I had all this debt. I was recently married and I needed to figure it out. And now, thank God, two months later, I got rehired into Goldman. And I built my career in private banking. And then once I paid off the school debt, I left for sure. And I didn't have a future there. But my point is, um, you know, stuff happens to you in your life. Okay, you guys uh, have a great podcast and you're entrepreneurs. And so, you know, a lot of things that happen to you are providential. You know, that's just the way it is. The people you meet, where you got born. I mean, did you guys pick your parents? I mean, maybe the Buddha says you picked them. I don't know. Maybe you did pick your parents when you were up in heaven, but I don't think you have any memory of picking them. You didn't pick the location of your birth. You didn't pick the ethnic origin of your DNA. I didn't. And so a lot of that stuff is luck. You know, if you're born with a high IQ, guess what? You have an advantage over other people. You know, if you're born in the right town in the right neighborhood, I was in the middle class area of that neighborhood, but there was a very good school system. I directly benefited from that. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? so Actually, you, a lot of it's probably you talk about you know giving advice to folks out of college or grad school or post 
grad or whatever professional schooling that, you know, don't chase the money. Right. And you hear that all the time, but you know, what if somebody is in the position that you were in where that's all they need in that moment, right? I, like well, some people, it's not, it's a luxury to choose, you know, you're, you're right. I'm not saying that necessarily. I'm saying that you're better off if you have a job between 110,000 and 90,000, but the $90,000 job you're going to be an all-star at and the $110,000 yep. job you're going to suck at, go yep. for that job because you'll, you'll, you'll have a higher slope and a higher career arc. Yep, so right. you have to pick things that you're passionate at doing. It can't just be a numerical amount. But by the way, I was very money focused. And I'm also a big believer in when you're giving people advice, what I hate about certain advice givers is, okay, I did X, X worked out for me. So you, Posh, you should do X. Or wait a minute, I did X and then X didn't work out for me. So Posh, I'll tell you what, you should do Y. I think that's the worst type of advice. The worst type of advice. The best type of advice is, you know what, Posh, what motivates you? What were you doing at age 18? What were you doing at age 17 that you said to yourself, my God, if I could do this for the rest of my life, I would never feel like I'm working a day. That's what you should be doing. Okay. And I feel feel like people are- For me, that was marketing and sales. For me, that was my Long Island Newsday thing. And that's what I ultimately ended up doing. You know, For my son, who's 21, and he's in the music business, and he's a videographer, I'm like, hey, Ant. It's my son, Anthony. You're only here once. Mel Brooks has one of the best lines ever. Relax. None of us are getting out of here alive. Just relax, okay? Enjoy the journey. Pick something you really love and go do it. You'll be great at it if you do that. If if you're just going money, and I'm not saying you only have that luxury. By the way, I probably would have gone into the media. I probably would have done something in the entertainment business. But I had anxiety about money, so I went the I went with Wall Street, you know, and I found the media and entertainment later on in life. Right here, mm-hmm. out of necessity, I'm all about going with what you need to do. But even in the necessity, posh, you gotta go with something you like, otherwise it's gonna be short lived, it won't be successful. Totally. And that's what I was gonna say is that sometimes your passion can be deferred and the things you like can be deferred once you get yeah. to a place where you know, you have enough money, you have the time, right? For yourself, it was media. For others, it could be investing. For others, it could be being, you know, a coach for a high school baseball team, right? Whatever the case may be, sometimes your quote unquote dreams and passions can wait and you have to focus on the things that are necessary for you to live out your everyday life. I mean, I think the average entrepreneur starts at what was it? 39 years old, 40 years old. Yeah. So people think, you know, because of the few people out there that have made it so big, oh, we got to start right after college. But no, sometimes it takes time. It takes, you know, meeting the right people, seeing the wrong leaders for you to actually, right, figure things out and excel so that you can do it better down the line. So with that said, you know, you talk about leaving Goldman Sachs. What was the plan? Did you make enough money? You were ready to now jump into entrepreneurship? No, I didn't. Like I said, I I was at, I had a net worth of zero. In fact, uh, I had some money in the bank, but I had a mortgage. So if you had both of those, you canceled it out. I paid off my school debt. And so it was super important for me to get going. I had a mentor who was about eight years older than me. And he was on my business team. We were two financial advisors at Goldman. We were managing money for high net worth individuals. And he came, his name is Andy Bozart, great guy. 
And uh, he was 40, I was 32. And he said, listen, I'd like you to come with me. I'm going to start my own business. And we can take our two names and smush it together. We'll call it Bozart and Scaramucci. I was like, well, that's too ethnic. So we ended up <laughs> Oscar, which was even worse because it was Bozart, B-O-S and S-C-A-R together, dropped the B, it was Oscar. That was the stupidest name in financial services history. But anyway, <laughs> we left at 40 and 32 respectively to start that business. And it was one of the most exciting things in my life because I want you to imagine myself delivering newspapers at age 12 and thinking someday I'm going to have my own business. I'm going to have gone to college. I'm going to have my own business. And I can set the scene for you. It was November, December of 1996. And I was moving into that office. I was moving books and records into that office, a very small office. We started at 120 Broadway. Then we moved up to Third uh, Avenue. Uh, and it was 903rd Avenue. And I got to tell you, I was living large. Now, I cut my salary from a ridiculously high paying job, seven figure job at age 32 at Goldman to a zero figure job. Why? Because I wanted to see if I could do it. I wanted to see if I could run my own business and I could create the customer experience and create my own brand. I'm doing that not for money, fellas. I'm doing that for self-actualization. I'm doing that because money's never enough. You'll, you'll figure that out. It's, it's something you know, and people that have money, they all, you know, when I had no money and somebody said to me, no, money was never enough. I used to laugh at them and say, that's because you have money. I have right. no money. And then when you get the money, you say, oh, God damn it. That old son of a bitch was right. It's never enough. Okay. And so for me, that exhilaration, that adrenaline flow, that experience of being in my own business, I'm going to tell you something. January 30th is my mom's birthday. And I'm going to set the scene. It's January 3rd. I start the business December 1st, 1996. It's January 30th. I'm in this little tiny rental office. I got a computer. And remember, it's not even a flat screen. It's one of those tube computers. Yeah. I got a phone. You know, I got the old-fashioned 1990s with a phone that, like, Ralph used, you know, on the fucking sitcom and shit, right? And I'm sitting there, and I'm shutting the lights off of my office to go to my mother's birthday party which is in the city, and I live on Long Island, but we're in the city for a party. I'm shutting the lights off, and I'm saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it. This business is going to succeed. And there is nothing like that if you're an entrepreneur. There is no feeling like that in the world if you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, but going back, did you like? why did you think it was going to succeed besides the fact that this was you – committing to this and you knew obviously within yourself that you could succeed if you put your mind to it and, and just did it. But were there other reasons too? Like, did you feel like you had the, the right network around you or the right resources and things like yeah, that that would make I mean, you? Look, a lot of it's providential. I left in a raging bull market. You know, I left. So, you know, we were making a lot of mistakes, but the market was covering up our mistakes. So yes, it was the network around me. It was my educational experience. It was my time at Goldman the people I met, it was the people that Andy knew, it was our energy, it was our industry, it was our drive, okay, but it was also, you know, we got lucky, we're leaving in a bull market. Imagine if I left and COVID-19 came that year. Imagine if I left or we went into a raging bear market the day that I left. Okay, so again, 
to the entrepreneurs listening, some of this is timing, some of this is providence, some of this is luck, some of this is determination, but all of it stems from tenacity and resilience. Because you guys know, whether it's this podcast or things that you've done in your life, you failed at it or wasn't going well, if you left it or you didn't stay with it, you didn't make it successful. You know, you've had setbacks in your lives. I've had countless setbacks. Hey, hey, look, hey, listen, if you're having a bad fucking day, imagine getting your ass fired from the White House after 11 days, okay? You're getting rolled in broken glass, and you're getting skinned and filleted, and you're getting rolled in margarita salt on that day, okay? Yeah. So what do you got to do? You got to pick your ass up. You got to dust yourself yeah. off. No whining, no victimhood, no self-pity, and go to work. So- Anthony, before we get into the White House and, you know, the glory days, as I'm sure you'd like to call it, uh, but well, what are you not fucking glory days? Those are fucking disaster days. <laughs> what did you do after <laughs> Oscar? Days. Donald Trump's about to get his ass kicked out of the White House. <laughs> and I got a paper ball in the freezer. These are glory days. That's fucking, that, those are disaster days. Bob. Well, uh, you know, I was, I was, I was being tongue in cheek, uh, but what did you do after Oscar, right? Did you launch Skybridge Capital once Oscar didn't work out or you just wanted to really go out on no, your own? Oscar worked out brilliantly. Oscar was very well executed, worked out brilliantly. Uh, we we had a billion dollars under management and Newberger Berman, which is a wealth manager, it's now a private company, but it was publicly traded at that time. It came. They came to see us and they asked to buy us. And so my partner and I, said, okay, what do you guys want to, you know, buy us for? When they wrote down the number, I looked at Andy, I said, okay, no offense, man, but I want to sell because I'm 37. That will make me financially independent for the rest of my life. And I can I can take care of my parents, which I'm going to need to do. I've been in a negative subsidy. My parents is the age of 12. And that'll take a lot of chips off the table. It'll allow me to think more freely and clearly. And to Bozart's credit, he was like, yeah, you're right. So we sold it. In 2001, we sold Oscar Capital Management to Newberger Berman, and then I got even luckier. Remember, some of this is luck. Newberger got bought by Lehman. Now, Lehman turned out to be the largest bankruptcy in history, but in 2003, Lehman was doing very well. They bought Newberger Berman, and I stayed until March of 2005 pursuant to my contract. Then I went to Dick Fold, who I always liked. He was the head of Lehman. I told him I wanted to leave because I'm an entrepreneur and I would like to go and start another business. And Dick was great. He gave me $10 million of balance sheet capital. And on March 7th, 2005, I started Skybridge Capital. Unless my 11-day fiasco in the White House, uh, I've been at Skybridge. And what's interesting, because I think Pat mentioned that most entrepreneurs are 39 to 41, I was early for Oscar Capital at 32, but I was prime time at 41 for Skybridge Capital in 2005. And so now I had a successful business that I started and successfully sold. I had clients that were loyal to me. I had the green light from Lehman Brothers okay, and balance sheet capital from them. And I got the business started and it was doing very well until, boom, the financial crisis came. And I'm like, holy shit, we're going to go out of business. We're going to get annihilated here. Um, and then you have to do what entrepreneurs are made to do. You have to become a human Swiss army knife. And you have to start to adapt and pivot. And so 
I began that process in 2008, and then I threw the Hail Mary, and I bought the fund of funds business and the alternative asset management business from Citibank. I merged it into my fund, and then I started something known as the SALT Conference. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. So I did that because I know I needed to expand my network. And those two things completely transformed my career. What was Skybridge, though? Was it a hedge fund? Yeah, Skybridge was a fund of hedge funds that was an early stage emerging manager hedge fund. And we were taking pieces of ownership in those companies. 2008 came, wrecked every single one of those companies. I lost 25% of the capital. Then I started getting redemptions. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to figure this out. And then the good news was that because, you know, one, one, one learning lesson to podcast listeners if you're in pain in your business, chances are, and you're executing it well, chances are other people around you are also in pain, meaning the tide is rising and lowering together. And so Citibank was in pain. And so Citibank needed to shed some assets. And I looked at one of their assets, their fund to funds business, which was a comparable business to the one I had. And I called my Corbett. He's now the retired CEO there, but at that time he was running the private equity area. Uh, he went to school with me and I said, Michael, uh, what are you doing with that fund of funds business? And well, I'm putting it up for sale. And so there was a competitive auction process. I won, We won the auction at Skybridge and we moved that team over to Skybridge on July 1st, 2010. Mm-hmm. And so we've been together for 10 years, almost 11 now. And uh, that was a big strategy diversion born from an environmental catastrophe and an adaptation and pivot, which was successful for Skybridge. By the way, we got our asses kicked in March of 2020 as a result of COVID-19. I'm a high profile person. So the Wall Street Journal was lighting me up, like burning me in effigy. Uh, And so we had to once again, adapt and pivot. And so we did that. I started a Bitcoin fund, which is having a rousing success. Uh, I started a secondary fund for pre-IPOs, which we've done a couple of those now. And my fund of funds, which did poorly in March of 2020, is up about 30% since April 1st. So, you know, I'm like a fucking cockroach, guys. You want to drop a fucking bomb on me, you got to kill me. If you don't kill me, I'm going to scramble out of the rubble. And as long as I'm standing, I'm going to figure out a way to grow, rebuild, and adapt. And that is a learning lesson for your listeners. Don't give up. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on your family. Don't give up on your employees. Okay, it's never as bad as it looks at the bottom. It's never as good as it looks at the top. And you want to be one of those people that's not a gun waiver. You know what a gun waiver is? We're at the okay corral. I got to hit the target. You don't want to be waving the gun in a panic situation. You know, pull the gun, shoot the target. You know, obviously, that's what I've been trying to do. Obviously, there are a lot of, I mean, there's a fair amount of hedge funds and investment firms out there. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, how you went about structuring this thing that and, and why you think it, you know, maybe performed a lot better than others or just was successful as opposed to a failure and, shut, you know, you having to shut it down. Like what made it so successful, do you think, kind of looking back? Well, see, so some of that is in your control. OK, and so, you know, we made a decision rightly or wrongly to go with. Uh, fundamental investing that had a yield component to it at a time when there were very, very low interest rates. And so as the interest rates were coming down, if you have something that's strong fundamentals, that's generating a lot of cash flow, people will pay more for it. So if you look at our performance 
from 2009 to 2014, it was staggeringly good. And so I'm not as good of a marketer as David Rubenstein. He's probably the, the best in the industry. But I do have a reasonable you know, sales team and reasonably good marketing skills and good performance you can market. And so, you know, we raised several billion dollars off of that really good performance. And so, you know, what I would say to you is I think that was in our control. That's good fundamental investing. What we missed, and we have to own this, is the COVID-19 crisis. I didn't see it coming. I missed it. In fact, I was at a World Economic Forum event in January of 2020, And I was with members of the World Health Organization and two epidemiologists, and they told us it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to be the movie starring Gwyneth Paltrow and Matthew Damon known as Contagion. It was going to be more like SARS and more like MERS. And so I was not invested appropriately at that moment, and I got caught in that crisis. And so March of 2020, the entire 2008 crisis happened to us in that like 17 day trading period. Right. But Anthony, like you said, you know, it was one of those situations that everybody was either rising together or coming down together. It wasn't like COVID wasn't affecting everyone. Every single person throughout the entire world was impacted. Luckily for you, I guess, I guess now looking back, it's lucky you knew how to weather this type of storm, right? Same with the company I work at. They've been through four or five different cycles, these down cycles. And so they don't get as nervous. So as a leader, right? Right. So as a leader, how do you approach this situation? How do you encourage your team and say, look, I know things seem really bad right now, but Mm -hmm. I've gone through this. That's why you're here. That's why we have this company. Tell us a little bit about that. I totally agree with what you just said, that you go through a few cycles and you become less nervous. Not to say that you're not still nervous, okay, but you become less nervous. Remember, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is being able to control and channel your fear. And so you're always going to be fear. I was fearful in March of 2020, but I had some faith in what you just said because I had experienced it. 1998, you had the long-term capital management debacle, and the Russian ruble crisis. That was a precursor to 2008. 2008, you had the global financial crisis. In 2020, you had the global pandemic. And so all of a sudden now you're like, okay, wait a minute, I can handle this. By the way, from a risk management perspective, you're also more prepared from a risk management perspective. I was way more prepared for 08 because of the mistakes I made in 1998. But even though I made mistakes in 2008, And I was way more prepared for 2020 because of 2008. Again, even though I made mistakes in 2020. But I will tell you this, we've had a faster recovery in 2020. Some of that is luck. Some of that's the Federal Reserve. But a lot of it is our hard work and a lot of it is our adaptation. So you can't learn what I'm saying in a book. You're not going to learn it in a podcast. But you can live it and learn it. And so I would encourage your listeners to push themselves, get themselves out on the frontier of their fear. They need to imagine the life that they want as their dream destiny if they didn't worry about the fear of failure. Okay, And I am living proof that you can fail a few times and pick yourself up and go forward. You know, I mean, look, I 
Should I have been in that White House job? Probably not. Did I want the White House job? I did. Did I take the White House job? I did. Did I suck at it and fail? Yes, I did. But you know what? I can't tell you the number of people I've met as a direct result of that job. And I can't tell you the number of positive externalities that came out of it as well. I probably wouldn't be on this podcast. You guys probably wouldn't even know who the hell I am. Let's talk about that. I mean, you know, you know, you're at Skybridge um, and the White House comes calling. And I know you had been critical of President Trump before that, um, probably even before he was president. I don't know. But like, how did that ha- come about? And why did you decide that to take it? Take the opportunity. So I, I was a political fundraiser uh, from the early start of my career. Why? I didn't have a network. I, I graduated from Harvard, which is a bo- old boys network, but I'm a young boy in an old boys network. I don't have a network. I don't hit tennis balls. I don't know how to swing a golf club. I've never saw the inside of a country club. And so I said, how am I going to make this work? And I realized that politics was an easy access entree into a certain echelon of society because politicians are looking for money. Wealthy people hang out with politicians. I started writing checks. I wrote my first check to Rudolph Giuliani. You can talk about him if you want, but I, I choose to remember him back then, not the way he is today. Seriously. He lost the mayor's race in 89, which actually helped me because he helped me start to build my career. I helped him in 93. He won in 93. Now I'm in his network and I'm starting to meet people and it's helping me grow my business. So I was always politically motivated. I was the garden variety Republican Party check writer. I was with Jeb Bush when Mr. Trump was attacking the hedge fund industry. So then I fired back at him. So I did make some critical remarks at him. He then called me. I went to his office. We had a nice conversation. He then said to me, listen, if Jeb comes out of the race, I want you to work for me. So I shook his hand and said, yes, I'll do that. And so Jeb comes out of the race. Trump calls me. I went to go work for him. I became his finance chief. Okay. And I was working alongside of Stephen Mnuchin and we were were helping him. But I got to be candid. I didn't think he was going to win. Trump didn't think he was going to win. And so I thought, okay, this is a good setup for me because I'm the garden variety Republican fundraiser in 2020. People will say, well, I work for Romney and now I work for Trump and I'm a good presidential fundraiser. I'll be in a good position for the proverbial Republican candidate 2020. Trump wins. The great shock of everybody. And so now Trump has won the election he turns to me and says, well, you're going to come work for me. I said, no, no, I'm not coming to work for you. I got Skybridge Capital. I'm hosting Wall Street Week. I got a great life. I got the SALT conference. I really don't want to go work for you. No, no, no. I'm going to give you a big job. I'm the president of the United States now, president-elect. You're going to come work for me. So that Friday, okay, he wins on November the 8th. That Friday, okay, uh, the Fox News Channel announces that I'm one of 16 members of the presidential executive transition team. I'm like, what? I call him That's up. That's how you found out. Yeah. I said, That's classic Trump. I call him up. I said, what, 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 you know, I just told you I'm not going to work for you. Ah, shut up. You're on the team now. You can't get off the team. Just shut yourself up. And you're going to go to work on Monday. You can help me build the cabinet. And I'm going to have a big job for you. It's going to be huge. Yeah, yeah. Now, learning lesson for podcasters, okay? 
Do not put your pride and ego into your decision making because, man, when you do that, your intelligence is going in the opposite direction of your emotions. Your emotions are going up and your intelligence going down. And now I'm starting to have this hagiographic, masturbatory dream of myself where I'm a blue collar kid. I went to Tufts and Harvard. I've lived part of the American dream. And now I'm going to work for the American president. Okay. Uh, hey, guy, wake up. He's the wrong guy to be working for. So my wife is knocking on the side of my noggin. She probably hates Trump almost as much as Melania. I mean, I think you got to give Melania the top position. You know, I, I don't think you can say anybody hates him more than her. So she, she's here. She's knocking on the side of my head. Hey, wake up. You don't want to go work for this guy. He's a bad guy. But I am in this fantasy world. I'm going to go work for him. Okay. So they offer me the OPL job. I go to take it. Ryan's previous and Steve Bannon do everything they can to block me from that job. Okay, these are bad guys. I pick up the phone. I call Trump. Trump says, I can't take that job because of what Bannon and Priebus are saying about me. I said, okay, no problem. They're bad guys. You'll want to get rid of them someday. When you do, give me a call. And for those that don't know, what's OPL? What's that? For those that don't know, what's OPL? OPL was the Office of Public Liaison. That was to be the president's chief networking officer. I actually thought I was well-suited for that part. You know, I was not well suited for the comms job, but I was well suited for that because I'm a networking guy. And so I thought, hey, that's a good job. I'll take that job. I'll be the president's chief networking officer. I'll help him. I'll build my role in it. It'll be good for everybody. So I don't get that job. Previous and bad and block it. If I was a smarter person, if I was a more mature person, if I was more psychologically minded at that moment, that was the message. Stay home. Don't go work in Washington. You're ill suited for it. But my pride and my ego are infecting my decision-making. Trump calls me in July, six months later. You're right about Priebus and Bannon. They're very bad guys. I want you to come down, and I want you to help me fix it. So colossal mistake number 501, like H&R Block, I say, fuck, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go be the comms director. Uh, Hey, hello, you're not suited to be the comms director. You're a television pundit. but You know nothing about being the comms director at the White House. Oh, no, that's okay. I'll figure it out. Right? Typical man testosterone bullshit. I go take the job. 11 days later, I'm fired. Uh, I got fired for uh, saying something to a reporter about Steve Bannon. You could look it up. Legendary comment, by the way. Absolutely true about the guy. But, you know, look, I shouldn't have said it, and I trusted somebody. That's my fault. I got fired. I'm accountable for the firing. I've never blamed that firing on anybody other than myself. And so I get fired, and now I'm trying to stay loyal to the president and to the Republican Party, but he's acting like a complete asshole. And he's continuing to perpetuate and exponentially grow his assholeish behavior. And finally, by July of 2019, I said, geez, I'm sorry. Can't take this anymore. So he's attacking me. I'm attacking him. And what does he do? He goes after my wife. Now, he knows my wife and I were fighting over him. I almost got divorced. He starts attacking my wife on Twitter. I think your listeners are probably figuring out that I'm not Ted Cruz. Do I look like Ted Cruz to you fucking guys? Because I'm no, not way better, way better looking. Way better Let me looking. Let fucking tell you something, okay? If you're going after my family and you grew up in my neighborhood, you're not allowed to return home if you don't fire back. So I started knocking them around. I think I called them Fidel Adolf Trump. So I was trying to get the fat shaming in there with the dictatorship. And that pissed them off. So he started hitting me some more. And then I was really hitting him. And then lo and behold, he stopped hitting me. 
because, you know, he was realizing all he was doing was raising my power, raising my influence. See what right. I mean? Anthony, what, what can you share with us during your 11 days there that you couldn't share, you know, when you first left? I mean, what was the situation really like? Because from the outside, you know, the perspective that we have as citizens of this country, it looks like a massive shit show, right? I mean, like, it doesn't look like things are very, you know, smooth over at the White House in terms of operations from a business perspective, right? But what yeah. was it really like being in there? Well, listen, I was there for 11 days. I don't regret it. I, uh, I got to fly in Air Force One three times. Uh, I got to see the inside and outside of the White House infrastructure and architecture. I learned a lot about Washington. I mean, I basically got a PhD in Washington scumbaggery in 11 days. I mean, I can tell you what these people are really like. So I don't regret any of that. Uh, but what I would say about Mr. Trump, uh, President Trump, is he has no executive management skills. If you were evaluating him, let's say we're doing a 360 degree or a 360 review, we're all on the same team. I would say, well, he can't run anything. He's a great raconteur. He's a great entertainer. He's a great communicator. He's got good political instinct, but he has no executive management skills, meaning delegating skills, creating autonomy for people, team building. Uh, uh, inspiring people, uh, restoration of confidence when people are making mistakes. He has none of those skills. He has none of those capabilities. And he was entertaining and fun on the campaign, but he became very brittle and very insecure as president. Ultimately, his presidency is a case study in giving somebody a job that they're not qualified for. And he had really bad executive management skills. So you know, if you were an expert on something, if you're a good executive, you bring the expert in, you learn from the expert, maybe even use the information the expert's giving you. But if you're insecure and the expert comes into the room, you have to steamroll the expert. You have to try to prove that you're smarter than the expert. You're smarter than the generals. You're a better epidemiologist than the epidemiologists. And, you know, McMaster called it reflexive intuitivism which is a Pentagon speak for this guy's really fucking insecure. Okay. And so that's what went down in the white house. It was a complete shit show, but in fairness, the guys like Kelly McMaster Bolton, they were trying to manage the process and manage him because he was completely and totally out of control. Uh, he wasn't going to take any direction from anybody and he was smarter than everybody. And there was a, cabinet member that came to see me in October 2019. This is after I had broken from Trump. And he sat on my couch and he said to me, we're going to be in for a very bad thing. And he's been very lucky that we haven't had a crisis because he has no executive management skills. He's got the entire executive branch of the government in disarray. If we get a crisis, we're not going to be able to handle the crisis. And a result of which, if we can't handle the crisis, the crisis is going to be our undoing. It's going to destroy him. It's going to really set back the country. And so I listened to what he said. And then in January, we hit the uh, general. His, his name was Soleimani. We hit General Soleimani in Iraq. And I was watching that on television. I said, holy shit, this is the crisis. And the guy, Soleimani is only a year ago. It feels like 500 fucking years ago. But it was I mean, a year ago. I totally forgot about that. Okay, and so I said, okay, this has got to be the crisis that this cabinet official was talking about. But it wasn't. That abated itself, thank God. Trump is lucky again. But then COVID-19 comes, and he does exactly 
what anybody close to him would predict that he would do. Denial, curve the facts, lie about the truth. It's 15 going to zero. We have one case. It's going away by April. We're going to reopen the economy in Easter. One lie, inject bleach into your arm, put in ultraviolet light. Into your, I mean, the guy's nuts. Okay, and now you're trying to contain and corral him. And at the same time that that's going on, you have this manifestation of this culture war. And he's fueling that culture war. And all of a sudden, we break apart the country. And we've got certain people wearing masks, other people not wearing masks. And we've got 400,000 people dead on its way to a half a million people dead. And you've got one in eight people in the uh, state of California in the city of Los Angeles with COVID. Oh, we know it well. We're right here. All of of which could have been avoided. I'm not saying we wouldn't have had deaths and there wouldn't have been some calamity to the pandemic. But if you look at the statistics, we did not need to do what we did here. We did not need to put ourselves in this position. Yeah. I feel like there's so much we could talk about on this topic, but I want to make sure we touch on something else that I know you're a huge proponent of, which is Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And obviously we're at a time now where we're seeing, um, I don't don't know if you want to call it a bull run, but it's like, you know, it's definitely going up and and everyone's sort of, I guess, wanting to hear about it. And we haven't had anyone on the show really that um, is maybe as knowledgeable as you. So we'd love to kind of talk about what your thoughts are in that area, why why you're so invested in it and what you're doing at Skybridge. So, I'm now blown from the White House and, you know, they're trying to cancel me. You know, they're doing all the stuff that they do because they hate Trump. I go on the Steve Colbert show. He's like, did you think you were going to last a long time? I'm like, well, I thought I was going to last longer than a carton of milk in the refrigerator. But here's the good news. And this is a learning lesson to entrepreneurs. If you're, if you're an entrepreneur, they can't cancel you. So guess what? I return to my business. Turn the lights back on, managing partner and founder of my business, my company welcomes me back, whether they want me or not, too fucking bad. I own the company. So I go back in, and now I register skybridgebitcoin.com. And I tell my my portfolio team, we have to do some research on Bitcoin. Bitcoin at that point is going from 20000 to seventeen or wherever it was down to 3000 It's blowing up. Okay, I think there's something there. We got to do some more research on it. We do research, we conclude that there's definitely something there. And if it scales and you're able to store it properly, and I'll explain what Bitcoin is quickly, and you can go to Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper, but effectively it's a series of digital encrypted codes. And he basically created an electronic ledger on the internet. And what he basically said was, I'm going to have 21 million of these coins. And we're going to price these coins at a certain value. We're going to let them trade freely. And if I'm correct, I'm going to create a monetary network that's going to become very, very valuable. Why? Well, it'll become valuable because the coins are scarce. And it'll become valuable that if people start to accept it and trust it as a value transfer, uh, it will it will pro- proliferate. And this will be something that will replace fiat currency because fiat currency is manipulated by central banks. And as an example, we have 23% more U.S. dollars have been printed in the last six months than we had prior. And we have a 240-year-old country, but we're printing the money. It's mm-hmm. causing this existential crisis between the haves and have-nots because the haves are getting more and more value for their assets and the have-nots are not. And so this yeah. coin is invented in 2009, 21 million coins. It's out there 
I'm not convinced that it's scaled yet to be a monetary network, so we don't touch it. And then How do you think that happens, though? Um, like, I guess, I'm, you know, for those that maybe don't know about Bitcoin, I guess they could go research it. But, like, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on where we go from here and how it becomes perhaps the primary form of currency, whether it's in the United States or just globally, because well, it is a global. It needs to become the primary form of currency. I just think it needs to be considered a store of value like it's digital gold. Okay, It has a lot of functionality of a store of value in the Internet. It's effectively now a monetary network. So you have 140 million users. Uh, you've scaled its price. It's got a $700 billion market cap. It's decentralized, so nobody can really interfere with it. And so now I think you're at a point where it's very competitive. And moreover, you can store your Bitcoins in cold storage, meaning it's it's in servers unrigged from the internet. Fidelity does that for you, or places like Coinbase or NIDIG. And so now you've got all the features that you need. And so about six months ago, I told my team, we're going to pull the trigger on Bitcoin. We're going to buy some for our funds, and we're going to set up a standalone Bitcoin fund. And why Bitcoin specifically and not other forms of cryptocurrency? That's a really good question, because Bitcoin is the big kahuna. Bitcoin is the winner in that space. Ethereum is a good asset. There are other assets, but I am an institutional investor, and I'm not going to be able to convince my clients and my hen net worth people to go into those other assets that they still, they're still having a hard enough time with the adoption of Bitcoin. And so I'm just going to stick with Bitcoin for right now. That's a gateway potentially into these other things, but I'm going to stick with Bitcoin. And so I established this. I got it scaled. Uh, I got $350 million in it. I opened up the Bitcoin fund on uh, January 4th. We've got over $60 million in it today. And it, I would encourage you and your listeners to buy the book on Kindle called Inventing Bitcoin. It's a little longer than a magazine article. It's shorter than a book, but it'll tell you the basics of Bitcoin, what it is, why it's going to be successful. And I see these coins being worth $100,000 by the end of the year. They're trading $35,000, $40,000 right now. And, uh, and yes, here's what I would say. If Amazon is a network for retail, and Facebook is a social network, and Google is a network for advertising and search, Bitcoin has become a decentralized monetary network. And as it scales, those coins are going to be way more valuable. Um, and if you got into Amazon in year 12 and you looked at the chart, you'd say, okay, I missed it. But if you put your money in in year 12 in Amazon, you made 64 times your money over the ensuing 12 years. I think we're at a very early stage in Bitcoin, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, growing that business. I'm looking forward to being one of the bigger players in that space because we're early. Anthony, so we have a few more minutes here, and I think that a lot of people are going to want us to ask this question and just to hear more of your thoughts on this. So today is January 19th yes. when we're recording this. Tomorrow at this time, we're going to have a new president, right? So for some people, that's exciting. For others, it's well, not. Regardless, it doesn't matter. If you were in my house, we'd be treating it like the Mets winning the World Series. I'd be spraying you with crystal. I just want to set well, the image for you. I might, I might show up, but that's a different story. But regardless, you as a Republican have been super critical of this president the last year and a half or so. And 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 serious, I mean, you've been happy that we have a new president coming, right? There are a lot of Republicans who are in your same shoes. Um, you know, and this question is twofold. Number one, 
where does the Republican Party go from here, right? Yeah. Do they use this as a rebuilding, rebranding, repurposing opportunity? And the second part of it is, where does the country go from here, right? Yeah. Are, should we be optimistic about the future of this country, of our fellow Americans, of American business, et cetera? So curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, listen, you know, go back to what I said about Trump starting in July of 2019 to where we are today. Uh, he manifested very predictably. I would say from November 3rd to today, every day since the election, he proved his unsuitability to be president. And ultimately, January 6th will be known as a day of fomented insurrection by an American president. And so I, I see Donald Trump as a seditionist and a traitor, an insurrectionist. And I see him as a domestic terrorist. And uh, I know people in the uh, House of Representatives feel that way because they impeached them for the second time. And I think as more evidence comes out about this man and his malevolence and what he's like as a human being, uh, he's an absolute disgrace. He's a disgrace to the country and he harmed the country actively and he tried to anger and divide the nation. OK, so but the, he's going to be on the dustbin of history starting on January 21st. He'll likely be indicted. He'll likely be convicted in the Senate. He won't have a political future. And could he go to jail? He could be the first American president to go to jail. Just go take a look at the CNN Trump insurrection video and go look at the body of information that Twitter has. Twitter banned him for a reason. Counterterrorist agencies of the United States government said that you got to ban him. He's fomenting violence. OK, Google, Apple, uh, they brought down Parler. Amazon Web Services shut down Parler because they were fomenting violence. And so it's hard for us because we're anesthetized to Mr. Trump. And it's hard for us because we've normalized him. And we say, well, he's in the office of the American presidency. How could he be doing this? He played us. He's numbed us to what he's doing. But 50 years from now, a presidential historian will look at this and say, OK, this guy was a full on terrorist and bad guy. So that's Trump. So he's done. OK, where's the Republican Party going? That's going to be up to the Republican Party. Right now, there's a vacuum of leadership. So some people are clinging to Trumpism. Trumpism is over. That's my prediction. And so a new party leader has to emerge, a vigorous, younger party leader that can state a vision for the Republican Party, that can be a restatement of some of its principles, but also an inclusion to those people that feel disaffected by the society, some of those people that represent Trumpism. And so it has to be an angerless movement. It can't be based on anger and hatred and division, but it has to be an aspirational movement. And I'm hoping and praying that Somebody will step into that void. It won't be Cruz or Hawley. There are two traitors. Hopefully, they'll get expelled from the Senate. Uh, but, but it'll hopefully be somebody that does that for the Republican Party. As it relates to America and the future of America, the very, very good news is that democracy worked, despite his challenge to the institutions of the democracy. And I believe, and I've talked to Jim Mattis about this, General Kelly about this, I believe we're going to be made stronger by what happened. I, I believe that the great irony of Trump is that he's a great unifier. Uh, he unified many of us against him. He's, he's leaving the White House with a 30-ish percent approval rating. Uh, and 70% of the people, whether you're me or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, we're teamed up against him. So we've unified. And now I think there's enough smart people involved where we have to begin the process of healing. And I predict that we will. And I predict that there are very bright days ahead for America once we get out of the COVID-19 crisis. 
And as I've said to the uh, Biden economic team, it's infrastructure, jobs training, it's uh, rebuilding the foundational principles of our educational system, civic virtue, which we talked about in the beginning. We have to reunite on those things. And I believe that we will. Yeah. And real quick, just to wrap this up, um, you know, you've obviously done so much already in your career, but you're still such a young guy. And I know you're working on Skybridge now, but do you see yourself just kind of sticking with Skybridge and just being in that arena for, for the rest of your career? Or do you have other plans that, you know, we No, I mean, I look, I'm, you know, people have asked me if I'm ever going to be in politics. I fucking hate politics. Okay. I mean, and, and right now I'm running for re-election in my marriage. Okay, that's my number one priority, my kids, my marriage, and my business. You know, having said that, I'm in the politics now, and I'm going to call balls and strikes the way I see them, and I'm going to be very honest with people. If I get invited on shows to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it. And if I don't get invited on shows to talk about it or podcasts, I won't. But somehow, I keep getting invited back. It's like I'm like the fucking Michael Corleone of politics, okay? I don't give a shit. If they invite me on, I'm going to put the makeup on. I'm going to go talk about it. If they don't invite me, I'm going to focus on my business. But I'm not yeah. running for office because it's not for me. I, I don't have the person. For me, there's a there's a venality to the process. Okay, I have to disembowel and gut my opponent, and ultimately that requires me to tell lies about my opponent. I'm not interested. It's not for me. And remember, your kids are watching you. Okay, so when I got my ass kicked in Washington, my 28 year old son, who's now graduate from Stanford Business School, is walking around with me in the the promenade in Santa Monica. It's 19, sorry, 2017. It's August. And for the first time in my life, I'm being parentalized by one of my kids. He's putting his arm around me and saying, hey, Pops, are you okay? I just got destroyed at the White House. I'm getting lit up by every late night comedian. And I look at him, I say, hey, AJ, not only okay, but watch what I do with this. Like, I'm going to melt these 11 days like Elsie the cow. And I said, oh, by the way, you know what I told Trump? He called me and said, are you okay? I said, Look, look, man, you made me as famous as Melania and Ivanka, and I didn't have to sleep with you or be your daughter. I'm just fucking fine. You don't have to fucking worry about me. And the point for my kid is that, hey, dust yourself off. Your kids are watching. You guys have kids? Not yet. Not yet. Okay, But when you do have them, they're going to be watching you. You're going to make mistakes. Can't help yourself. You're going to make mistakes. Dust yourself off and go forward. All of a sudden, the kids realize, okay, it's not so bad. You can survive things. Well, well said, Anthony, and thank you so much for your time. Uh, It's been a pleasure, and I know that everyone's going to enjoy it.